Well, our sermon text this evening follows from the morning's sermon, looking now at verses 19 through 26 of Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is teaching again further on sanctification by grace. Uh, Specifically, we're going to be looking at, as you see in the sermon title, the works of the flesh uh, over and against the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, So for context, we are going to begin with our text from this morning, which is verse 16, and then read to the end of the chapter. Give attention now to the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And our text for this evening. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit, inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thus far for the reading of God's holy and inspired word, may he bless it to us. Well, as we continue now through the rest of Galatians chapter 5, again, what what Paul is doing here is he's continuing on by the prompting of the Spirit uh, with his teaching on the doctrine of sanctification. Again, recall at the beginning of the chapter, Paul reiterated the importance of holding to the doctrine of justification by faith alone over and against the heresy of the Judaizers, the the group of legalists or neonomians as they were often called in the history of the church who were afflicting this particular church. And as Paul argued his point at the beginning of the chapter, he demonstrated that the reality of justification not only renders righteousness by the works of the law unnecessary because we have the righteousness of Christ now imputed to us, But he also argued that now that we are in Christ, that our flesh is to be mortified so that we can pursue conformity to Christ and to the law of Christ. In other words, the gospel not only goes against legalism, it also goes against, again, antinomianism. Because the same spirit that gives us faith in Christ also will cause us to bear fruit in conformity to the law of Christ. And again, as we considered this morning, this fits in with the logical flow of Paul's letters, that sanctification follows and flows out from our justification. And so as we continue on to examine the end of chapter 5 this evening, we see Paul reiterating that reality to us and fleshing it out further, Uh, by uh, reminding us, again, that we are implanted into Christ by faith, that we are members of the kingdom of God, and so therefore we as believers uh, need to identify and then crucify the works of the flesh within us, 
and then strive to bear the fruit of the Spirit as believers, as the people of God that have been set apart by grace for Him. And so as we examine this subject this evening, again, we're going to have three points. And uh, those three points are going to be that we're going to examine the works of the flesh first. So we're going to take a look and consider the works of the flesh. Then we are going to examine the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, we will look further at how we are to crucify the flesh by walking in step with the Spirit. And so first then, let's examine what Paul says here about the works of the flesh. And he enumerates those in verses 19 through 21. Again, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So after admonishing us there in verses 16 through 18 to walk in the Spirit and to thus not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, Paul now describes what it looks like to walk according to the lusts of the flesh. According to Paul here, to walk according to the flesh looks like a lifestyle of adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And if you really examine this list and think about it and consider it, you'll notice that this isn't just a list of some random things that Paul has conglomerated together that he thinks are particularly naughty, really bad things. Instead, you'll notice that all of these so-called works of the flesh are ultimately interrelated with one another. In fact, we can summarize them under four basic headings. Physical lusts, spiritual lusts, hatred of others, and hatred of self. Again, those four things. Physical lusts, spiritual lusts, hatred of others, and hatred of self. So two forms of lust two forms of hatred. Again, these four categories are how we can summarize the works of the flesh as they've been enumerated here. So let's take a moment here and let's examine these things. First, let's consider the heading of uh, physical lust. Lust proper, as we might call it. Paul says that the works of the flesh include adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. Of course, adultery and fornication have to do with uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. Whereas uncleanness and lewdness has more to do with our thoughts and our overall lifestyle. Uh, Uncleanness there in the Greek and in the context in which it's used uh, involves the concept of being uh, dirty or impure while lewdness has more to do with sensuality and licentiousness. In other words, uh, those latter two are, are the dispositions and the attitudes which lead to adultery and fornication. Of course, the image that, that might come to mind with lewdness is of a, of a woman who dresses inappropriately and who acts overtly flirtatious with men, Uh, Or think of the man who views women as mere objects and who uh, approaches them in a a flirtatious and charming way, right? He's got game or whatever, and he he sees women simply as trophies to be won over by him. Again, I'm sure that we're familiar, all of us, with this kind of thing out in the culture and with 
people that we've met one way or another into various degrees. Uh, so that's the idea with those words and those concepts, that lifestyle. But, but what underlies these physical lusts is an approach to life that views other people, especially members of the opposite sex or in our day even the same sex, as mere objects of self-gratification. In fact, that's a good definition of what lust is. It's an approach to life where you view other people as mere objects who are to serve your own selfish ends rather than some higher end. And so Paul here first mentions physical lusts, lusts proper as being a manifestation of the works of the flesh. But then he immediately goes on to describe what I've dubbed spiritual lusts as well. At the beginning of verse 20, he refers to idolatry and sorcery. Again, these are what we can call spiritual adultery, spiritual lusts and impurities. Now, as I'm sure that many of you know, an idol... Uh, is not necessarily a statue that you bow down to. No, an idol is really anything that we place before God in our lives and how we live. As the Heidelberg Catechism says that our Dutch and German friends use, it says that idolatry is to conceive or have something else in which to place our trust instead of or besides the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word. It's to have anything before God or next to God that we trust in. And you see throughout scripture, especially in the Old Testament prophets, this is portrayed as a form of spiritual adultery or as a form of, we could say, uh, spiritual lust. Again, the idea is that the object that you trust in or idolize exists merely for your own gratification apart from any higher meaning or higher purpose. So whether it be money, sex, success, or material objects, when we idolize these things, what we do is, is we fail to properly subordinate them to God and to His will as it's been revealed in His Word. And thus we fail to enjoy them as good gifts from God through which we might glorify Him. And again, instead, they become objects of mere self-gratification. We can do that to any created thing. This is why idolatry is compared to spiritual adultery in Scripture. It is a betrayal of the Lord our God, and especially the first commandment, that we are to have no other gods before Him. This is also what sorcery is all about. Sorcery is, is more commonly called witchcraft, or in our day and age, it's often called the law of attraction or some people just call it spirituality, right, with all this New Age humdrum. But as the Puritan Matthew Poole defines it in his commentary uh, on this text, sorcery is, quote, the product of compacts with the devil, by virtue of which the person so contracting are assisted by the power of evil spirits to produce effects beside the ordinary course and order of nature and for the most part, mischievous to others. And while in popular thinking, uh, these sorts of things, right, when you look at different New Age practices, and, and again, the law of attraction, uh, in the popular thinking, this is all uh, due to spiritual laws, supposedly, that exist out in the universe. Maybe some of you remember that book from over a decade ago that, that Oprah promoted called the secret that, again, argued for the law of attraction. We have that also in the prosperity gospel with the name it and claim it and blab it and grab it stuff. Yet sorcery isn't found in, in some spiritual law that we can utilize. Again, sorcery finds its power, as Matthew Poole said, in the power of the devil. Through rituals and through occult practices, one comes under the influence of demons 
who do your bidding for you according to the limited power that they have, and thus they bring you under further bondage to your idols and to themselves. But again, the the motive with sorcery, what is it? It's to gain power, to get what you want out of your life so that you can get your idols on demand. And so again, it's another form of spiritual lust. It's another form of spiritual adultery. So Paul mentions those two forms of of lust and adultery there as being works of the flesh to gratify yourself. But then he goes off to list sins of hatred and malice. That is hatred towards self or hatred towards others and then hatred towards self as manifested again in a lifestyle of self-destruction. He goes on there to mention hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, and murders. Again, all of these are actions and attitudes that harm others. And they are all motivated by self. They're all motivated by a desire to impose your will upon others. In other words, as you are pursuing your your physical lusts and your desire for spiritual power, you are willing to harm others who get in the way of you. And so if someone stands in the way of your success, or if uh, someone gets in the way of your ego, you will hate them and envy them and, and bring your wrath against them. Even heresies are relevant here, as almost all heretics in the history of the church, are seeking to make a name for themselves by branding their own doctrine and by creating a cult of personality around themselves that serves their own selfish ends while harming others. Many false teachers will win people over by drawing all sorts of attention to their good works and to how they give the appearance of having it all together. That's the selling point. If you follow them, you can have it all together like they do as well. And of course, responding to heresy, specifically heresy about the doctrine of justification by faith alone is what this epistle has been all about. And so it's quite fitting for Paul to include this as one of these works of the flesh. But, but heresy is selfish in nature on behalf of the false teachers. And it does harm souls. This is why... Back in the era of Christendom, in centuries past, there were penalties for heresy because people took it seriously that it harms people when you spread heresy. But at the bottom of this, at the bottom of of, of physical lusts and and spiritual adultery, at the bottom of idolatry and, and sorcery, and at the bottom of hatred toward others, is a pattern as well of self-hatred and a pattern of self-destruction. You see, if you attack God and if you attack the image of God in others, you will also end up attacking it in yourself. Uh, This is what Paul refers to at the very end there when he talks about drunkenness and revelries. This describes an addiction to alcohol, but of course we could substitute other substances as well, which ends up, of course, becoming self-destructive. And if you think about it, this is where all the other works of the flesh normally lead us, don't they? Think about celebrities, for instance. Uh, Celebrities, we call them the stars, right? Especially movie stars, because... They are sort of what our culture aspires to be. They're the ones that we're all to look up to. But think about celebrities and the pattern of so many of their lives. They can indulge in all the physical lusts they want. They are often, many of them, openly or under the shadows into sorcery and the occult. And they are often willing to pursue their own selfish ambitions at the expense of others And yet, where does it often lead? Sadly, it so often leads them into the misery of addictions, along with other self-destructive patterns of behavior. 
of course, going with the theme of this book. Uh, heretics and cult leaders have been known to be given over to addictions and other self-destructive behaviors. If you've ever heard uh, the sad, and I don't recommend you listen to it, but if you ever have heard the sad recording of Jim Jones on the day of the mass suicide, he was slurring his speech because he was heavily addicted to barbiturates. So also Satanist Aleister Crowley, who had a big influence on the 20th century and on pop culture, was a lifelong heroin addict. He claimed to have power over nature, and yet he couldn't even have power over his addiction. But these are the works of the flesh, according to Paul. Physical and spiritual lusts, hatred for others, and hatred for self. A self-destructive pattern of behavior. And Paul says in verse 21, as he concludes listing off and enumerating these works of the flesh, he says, Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Think about that. Those who practice these things will not make it to heaven. They won't enter into the kingdom of God. Instead, they will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. As Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those are heavy words. And if this seems harsh to you, remember what we just briefly considered. The works of the flesh ultimately end in self-destruction. And so God meets them in that place and pours out His wrath as they have destroyed the image of God in how they have treated others and in themselves. And while, yes, we all struggle with the works of the flesh at times, and while, yes, we, we even struggle with some of these things even as mature believers, some of the things mentioned in both Revelation and uh, what, what Paul enumerates there, yet what Paul is describing here is someone who lives out of the works of the flesh as a lifestyle so that they are in bondage to the works of the flesh. You see, the works of the flesh are, at the end of the day, simply the works of the fallen human heart. Think about original sin and the fall of Adam and Eve for a moment. What was that all about? What was the core feature of the fall and their giving in to the temptation? Well, it was an attempt to become God by turning from God while turning in on self. Remember, the, the serpent told Eve that uh, she could determine good and evil for herself, apart from any divine revelation. In fact, he implied that God's revelation couldn't be trusted, uh, which is what instigated rebellion within Eve. This is why uh, you should not listen to and hear as believers attacks upon God's Word. Yes, if we want to learn how to respond to certain arguments that are made apologetically, yes, that's appropriate for Christians in the right context to study that. But remember, giving in to temptation and original sin began with arguments against the trustworthiness of God's Word when a believer is supposed to be one who presupposes and assumes God's word, and then lives out of that reality. But this gets right to the heart of the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are simply a manifestation of this fallen human disposition. Whether it's physical lust, spiritual adultery, hatred of others, or hatred of self, it's all motivated by and a result of this desire to go our own way, and to live out of our own resources, for our own ends, and for our own purposes. 
And again, this not only ends in self-destruction, but as Paul warns here in speaking to the church, it ends in the destruction of the body of Christ. This is why Paul writes in verse 21, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. I'm sorry, that was verse 26 there at the end. We'll, We'll get there in a bit, but he warns them to not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. In other words, he tells us not to be puffed up with either self-righteousness from a legalistic mentality or to be puffed up with the works of the flesh from a licentious mentality. Instead, we are to repent and humble ourselves as believers. And the implication is that if we continue on in the works of the flesh, that it will be harmful to the body of Christ. You see, whether it be lust, idolatry, hatred, or drunkenness, these are sins that tend to infect others when we practice them. Lust begets lust. Idolatry begets idolatry. Anger begets anger. And drunkenness seeks to rope in others as well. Other people sin against us, and so we respond by sinning against them. You see, our sin does and will affect other people. We have this libertarian, atomistic understanding in our culture of who we are, that we are just these disconnected individuals. So what I do in my own time is none of your business and it doesn't affect you. It will affect people in profound and subtle ways. And so Paul is warning us here to beware of the works of the flesh as individuals and as a corporate body. And in context, he's implying Uh, that the heresy of legalism will will ultimately breathe life into these works of the flesh. Uh, Just go back as we did this morning and compare again verses 16 and verse 18 with me. Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And then he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see the, the life of the Spirit is being contrasted there with both legalism in verse 18 and with the lust of the flesh back there in verse 16. So you see they are really just two sides of the same coin as we considered at the beginning of the month. And indeed, if if you go into legalistic circles, there is often a very ugly underbelly of outright sin that's being covered up. And that makes sense because, again, as we considered, both legalism and antinomianism are rooted in the same source, in the pride of self. It's rooted in those, that bitter spring of the pride of self. But Paul here warns us against these things. He says that those who live out of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to examine ourselves. And we need to repent of these things. As we considered this morning, we are to daily examine our hearts before the law of God. And we need to repent. We need to ask for forgiveness and ask for strength to obey God in our daily walk. And Paul mentions particulars here. Things that we don't want to think about. But they're there. Paul mentions particulars. Not just sin in general. You see, we are to repent of our particular sins particularly, as our confession says. Not just our general sin, but we need to identify the things that we struggle with, the things that we have done, and we need to confess and repent of them. However, in repenting of these things, Paul also then goes on to encourage us in a better way. He encourages us to be filled with the Spirit so that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit. In verses 22 and 23, he writes saying, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, in looking at that list, the first thing that I want you to notice here is that the fruit of the Spirit is singular, not plural. 
In other words, these are not the fruits of the Spirit. They're the fruit of the Spirit. The idea is that these things are sort of like different shades of the same color. They are all manifestations of the same Spirit at work within you. So, for example, you you can't say that you are uh, filled and controlled by the Spirit and, and I bear the fruit of love and joy, but you know, I'm just not really patient and kind with people. Those aren't really the fruits that I bear. No, it doesn't work that way. You see, just as the attributes of God are all fundamentally one, so the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of God's presence within us is fundamentally one. However, as I alluded to, they are sort of like different shades of the same color. And those shades are given to us for a reason, because, again, these are attributes that we should look for and and that we should aspire to and that should mark our character. So let's consider them for a moment, just as we considered the works of the flesh. And the first thing that I want you to keep in mind is that while there's certainly an interior quality to these attributes, uh, that is, that they, they have to do with our thoughts and, and with our emotions, our internal life, yet Paul describes them primarily as outward actions. This is something that we need to keep in mind, because we often read uh, this list as if it's sort of like an antidepressant commercial or something. All about improving our interior state. You know what I'm talking about where they have those commercials where the person's prancing through the fields and the sun's shining down and the narrator says, talk to your doctor about Cymbalta or whatever, right? Um, And then it lists off all the ways that it might kill you and drive you crazy. And so we can read this list and we can think of it in this therapeutic way of of thinking, right? We can picture the the fields and the sunshine coming down and try the fruit of the Spirit. You'll have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? We make it all about internal therapy and us feeling better. But you see, as John Calvin says in commenting on verse 25, uh, the fruit of the Spirit has more to do with our walk that that we've been hearing about repeatedly in this text. And in this portion of text, it has more to do with our walk or with our outward actions rather than some subjective experience. Now, in looking at these fruit, these individual attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, with those first three attributes, uh, there does seem to be an interior quality to them, especially with joy and peace. We, We tend to associate those with emotional states, don't we? And at a certain level, we can say that even if we manifest joy and peace towards others, corporately as a body, that that will usually come out of something, right, that we experience within ourselves. Uh, However, as one commentator put it in, in commenting on this, he says it is worth noting that the fruit of the Spirit here consists primarily of attitudes and actions that enhance personal relationships Precisely the great weakness of the Galatians, the qualities of joy and peace, probably refer not to subjective feelings, but to the way we deal with each other. Even the term faith could be understood as faithfulness. That's what the New King James says. Again, in personal relationships. There is also emphasis on kindness and patience. Again, that deals with other people. You see, when we view the fruit of the Spirit in this life as a singular unity, uh, dealing with our whole manner of life, it makes sense, doesn't it? Just like with the attributes of God, these attributes of the fruit of the Spirit are all intertwined with one another. After all, love is joyful, just as it's peaceful and patient with others. So likewise, if we are faithful to others... Uh, We will love them and rejoice in them. And when we are self-controlled, we will be kind and good and gentle with others, won't we? Again, all of this is the singular fruit of the Spirit. And so these attributes are intertwined and feed into one another. Because it all 
arises from the same source. And as Paul says here, against such there is no law. In other words, there is no charge that you can bring against someone in their exhibition of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as Paul enumerates it here in context. And so these are all virtues that the Christian is to pursue. I'm very concerned right now uh, because, especially because of, I think, the influence of social media, there are many in the Reformed Church who speak against kindness, goodness, and gentleness as if these things are vices or signs of weakness. When Paul says here, against such, there is no law. Again, those who often claim to fight for the truth, right? The, the keyboard warriors who claim that they're so conservative that they're justified in being harsh and even mean. They will often virtually speak against this manner of life enumerated here as if it's weak and unfaithful. Now don't get me wrong. Cowardice is a sin, as we considered when I quoted from Revelation 21, as my friends and I used to say in seminary, and encourage one another, we could say, cowards burn first, according to the list in Revelation 21. But cowardice isn't the same as gentleness and kindness. In fact, a lot of cowardly men are mean and nasty. A lot of men are insecure and scared, and they cope with it by lashing out at others while justifying what they're doing. But you see, especially thinking of biblical manhood and womanhood, you can stand for the truth while turning the other cheek when that's appropriate, while fighting for the truth when it's called for, while also exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, we are commanded to live in this way. And Christians throughout history have done so. But as Paul says and implies here, uh, we are to be, again, animated by the fruit of the Spirit. We are to be animated and characterized both individually and corporately by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, especially in how we deal with one another as the body of Christ. So how do we get there? How do we grow in bearing the fruit of the Spirit? How do we come to reflect these attributes that the Spirit, in a sense, infuses within us? Well, we get there by crucifying the works of the flesh while walking in step with the Spirit. As Paul writes and reiterates in verses 24 through 26, he says, And those who are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul says that if we are in Christ, then we have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires, the works of the flesh that he mentioned earlier. In other words, while we still might all struggle with the works of the flesh and be tempted, they will no longer have mastery or dominion over us. Instead, they've been mortified or put to death by our union with the crucified and risen Christ. Remember this morning when we examined verses 16 through 18, we saw that sanctification isn't so much about uh, becoming more and more sinless. No, it's about denying the flesh and subordinating the flesh under the rule of the Spirit. I had that analogy I used of oil and water. When you pour oil into water, it will uh, sort of mix, uh, but then the oil will glob together and rise to the surface so that you have the oil on top of the water. Again, this is a good analogy for the reign of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. The Spirit is to be supreme. He is to be uh, mas having mastery over us. We are to willingly walk in step with the Spirit. 
And as we do so, He will begin to transform and and reorder our affections while putting down the flesh and the works of the flesh. And that's what Paul is getting at when he ends here saying that those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh along with its desires. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, this is something we often miss. Uh, we, We think about just the legal transaction. But when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't simply take upon our guilt. He also united our flesh or our sinful nature to Himself so that by His death, He put to death our sinful nature. Again, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, in question 43, speaking of sanctification, it puts this in a really good way that we can understand. It asks, what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? The answer that it gives is that by His power, our old man is with Him crucified, slain, and buried. Our old man is mortified in union with Christ. Then it goes on, so that the evil lusts of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So when we enter into Christ by faith, our sinful nature is put to death. It's, it's buried with Christ. And we are then raised up with him to serve him and to be a sacrifice of thanksgiving. For him. And these two things, the, the dying of the old man and the making alive of the new by the Spirit, this corresponds within us to the actions of repentance and faith. As the Holy Spirit awakens us to the sinfulness of sin, as we begin to see the works of the flesh for all of their ugliness and self-destructive power, as Paul illustrated earlier, we grow to to hate and flee from them more and more. And we thus learn to repent of it quickly and more thoroughly. And likewise, as we behold the grace of God in Christ, as we begin to see the beauty of the Gospel and the beauty of the self-giving love of God by faith, We learn to embrace Him more and more. And we learn to relish Him and delight in Him more and more. We learn to embrace the free grace of the Gospel and to simply enjoy it as the gift of God that's been given to us and not anything that we've earned. And so when we sin as believers, we repent. And by faith, we find God's steadfast love waiting for us once again like the prodigal Father, in the the parable of the prodigal son. Or when we wrestle with guilt, we hear the promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And our our shame and our spiritual anxieties are relieved. Or when we suffer, we, we see the sympathy of Christ in dying for us. And in being tempted just as we are, yet without sin. And we remember that He will never leave or forsake us. As we sang this morning in Psalm 139, Where can I from your spirit flee? You see, when we truly come to repent and trust in the gospel of Christ, we can't but help to die to self while likewise being filled with the selfless virtues of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, as those things reflect the very character of the Christ whom our eyes are fixated on by faith. This is the connection between our old nature, having been crucified through our union with Christ, and this singular fruit of the Spirit that we are to bear by the power of the Spirit. We are now united to the blessed man of Psalm 1, which we will sing here in a moment, 
We are united to the Word made flesh. And so we will bear fruit in season. And again, this will be manifested, and it must be manifested, especially towards others, especially towards those for whom Christ died, especially towards the church and the members of the church. And so Paul encourages us by reminding us that this is already true of us if we are in Christ. We are in Christ and we will bear this fruit. And yet he also encourages us to self-consciously seek to grow in this. As he says in verses 25 and 26, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The idea here is that we are to walk and step with the Spirit in order to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And that as we do this, our self-conceit, our provoking of one another, and our envying of one another will begin to dissipate. Someone who has gazed long upon the face of Christ in light of their sin. Someone who has seen who Christ is towards him or her as a sinner will be long-suffering and not conceited towards other believers. And so in closing, again, let's remind ourselves, what does it mean to walk in step with the Spirit? Well, remember, as we saw this morning, the Holy Spirit's presence is first manifested in us through our faith in Christ. If someone comes to faith in Christ, that is the initial sign that, they, that the Holy Spirit of God has entered into that person and is now at work within them. The Spirit enlightens us to know Christ and to believe in Christ. And as we know Christ and believe in Christ through the channel of our faith, we will drink in greater measures of His Spirit. Again, the Spirit and our faith have this reflexive relationship of sorts. And so as the Spirit increases His work, so does our faith and vice versa. But this then also goes on to issue forth into new obedience. Desiring new obedience, actively pursuing, growing in our obedience is also a sign of the Spirit's work within us. As our faith increases, as our love and our joy in Christ increases, so will our desire to obey increase. And as we obey, we will then be strengthened and further encouraged in our life of faith and in our love and joy in Christ. So the Spirit works from our faith out to our desire for obedience and then back again. Again, obedience is reflexive as well. When you look at our confession, when it talks about the assurance of faith, primarily we are to look to the promises of God. We are to believe in the promises of God. But our confession is very clear that as we bear fruit, as we obey, right? This is ancillary encouragements to our assurance. It's a necessary part of our assurance to grow in bearing fruit and in obedience. It's for the good of your soul to seek to grow in your obedience to God and to His law. And so we grow by the Spirit then. And it all begins through the means of grace, through prayer, through the Word, and through the sacraments. These things increase our faith, and they thus increase the Spirit's influence within us so that we go on to grow in our obedience to the law of the Lord. The means of grace implant us deeper into Christ so that we bear deeper and richer fruit. And again, this will especially, this fruit will be manifested especially towards one another. That's why we partake in the sacraments corporately. This is why we don't do right, private sacraments. Because the meaning of the sacraments is tied to the body of Christ. As Paul says, again thinking of our partaking of the supper last week, we are one body because we partake in one bread. We are the body of Christ together. And so we are to bear fruit 
and obedience together as we are implanted into Christ together. You see, together we are to walk in the Spirit and together we are to crucify the flesh so that we might grow in expressing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control toward one another. Let's now bow our heads together in prayer and pray that God would work these things within us individually and corporately as a body. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we think about the creation, we see that you created a world that is fruitful. We see that before Adam walked on the earth, before the animals walked on the earth, you caused the earth to to bear fruit so that life might be sustained. And when we think of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and we think of the tree of life in the garden, we see that tree-bearing fruit from day one has been the symbol of the covenant of being implanted into the life of God through the Word and Spirit. And Lord, when we think about our life as believers, yes, we think about Your wondrous grace as it's been revealed in the Gospel of Christ. We think about our justification by faith alone, our adoption, these wondrous truths that we are to never move on from, but continue to rest in and and delight in and live in light of. And yet, Lord, we also think about how we are to bear fruit. You have planted us into Christ, into the vine. We've been grafted in so that we might bear fruit. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to bear fruit, that we would be a people rooted in Christ by faith, That we would be a people that mortifies the flesh and and tends to the garden of our life, so to speak, ripping up the weeds and and, uh, repenting of our sin. But we pray, God, that you would uh, cause us by your grace to be those who bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. That yes, we might have joy and delight in you, but we pray that we would bear fruit in our dealings with one another. Build us up together as a body here in Southfield, in Southfield RPC. Build us up together in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. knowing that these characteristics mark the very Savior whom we confess and trust in and submit to. We pray that we would also bear this in the week ahead as we deal with our neighbors, as we go into our place of employment, as we deal with neighbors and friends and family. We pray that we would bear fruit towards them as well, that they might see our good fruit and that they might glorify you, our Father in heaven. Lord, we ask that you would graciously be at work in us in this way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.